The Rockford Files won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to the Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about murder by death. Oh, baby. I love this movie so much. You know what's really funny? I was texting with my sister, mm-hmm. and I realized, my sister, my lovely sister, Tracy. Yes, yes Tracy's also. Um, that all three of the movies are, were like our favorites growing up as kids. Bugsy Malone, Murder by Death, and then the upcoming uh, Mad, Mad Monster, Monster Party. And uh, I just want to give... Trace a shout out. Nice. Hopefully she's listening because anytime these movies came on, yeah. we would watch them. And I was talking to a friend yesterday and uh, of the same, close to the same age, <laughs> and he made a really good point that the reason why these movies kind of took off is because, you know, when there was the, when there were like HBO and Showtime mm-hmm. when they first started out, it was basically, you know, they would run three movies all yeah, day. Yeah. Yeah. And so they would put these movies on and you would just catch it, them. Yeah. And you'd be like, all right. And you'd end up watching them like 60 you, times in a month. You, you liked them because <laughs> you just saw them a billion times. And yeah. it gave them a life. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of these cult hits oh, that yeah. we're talking yeah. about yeah. really kind of found their life in kind of early early cable. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. I agree. Uh, and I want to say that uh, thank you to your sister. I'm doing uh, the world a favor by passing on. I actually watched this with my 14-year-old nephew. Nice. And he really liked it. <laughs> That's su- surprising. Yeah. yeah. But very cool. You have, but not surprising because your family is very <laughs> smart and, you know, yeah. they know what's good and what is not. All right. Well, take yourself back to 1976. Ooh. February 19th, former Tower of Power vocalist Rick Stevens is arrested for murdering three men during a botched drug deal. He ultimately serves 36 years of a life sentence. Damn. Yeah. I just thought it was very odd going from the heights of Tower of Power to murdering three people. Drugs are powerful, yeah. baby. Uh, March 1st, Bradford Bishop... Bishop allegedly murders five of his family members in Bethesda, Maryland. The crime goes undiscovered for 10 days, and the suspect is never caught. In 2014, he was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. The fugitives list? The fugitives list. <laughs> Crazy. He, he's never been caught. The man has literally got away with murdering his family. So watch out. Left. Yeah. He might be right behind you right now. He's, he is. He is. He's he is. like 80 now, though, probably, huh? He's probably dead. <laughs> I mean, most likely. June 20th, hundreds of Western tourists are moved from Beirut and taken to safety in Syria by the U.S. military following the murder of the U.S. ambassador. Could you imagine taking people to Syria for safety now? <laughs> That's very true. Gee. That seems very, yeah. It must have been really messed up in Beirut, baby. <laughs> Out of the fire and into the kettle? No, well, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the Mideast was very different back it, then. Yes. Yes, um, it was. Uh, June, I, I, I just want to say, mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of sense a common theme here. Uh, yeah. A lot of murder by death. <laughs> June, not, not as funny. As, uh, no, 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 no. Definitely not as funny as the movie. Uh, June 23rd, murder by death is released into theaters. Oh, yeah. Uh, murder by death, just by definition, is hilarious because whoever says murder by death, I it just is such a it's the perfect title for this movie. It sounds to me like something that uh, the former president would say. <laughs> he was murdered by death. <laughs> murder by death is the brainchild of Neil Simon. Uh, he wrote more than, more than thirty plays and nearly the same number of movie screenplays, mostly film adaptations of his plays. He owned. It's so weird. He owned like the late 70s, early 80s oh, with yeah. his play adapt. Man, movies were just one play adaptation after another. Yeah. It yeah. Was just, and, they, and, and 90% of them were his. Uh, yeah. And yeah. they're all the, really good, too. The man was so prolific. And yes, and he was very talented. Very, very talented. Uh, he's received more combined Oscar and Tony Award nominations than any other writer. Deserved. Very much so. Uh, Simon grew up in New York uh, during the Great Depression. His parents' financial difficulties affected their marriage, giving him a mostly unhappy and unstable childhood. That's what it takes, baby. <laughs> it's where great art comes from. Exactly. Yeah. He often took refuge in movie theaters, where he enjoyed watching early comedians like Charlie Chaplin. After graduating from high school and serving a few years in the Army Air Force Reserve, he began writing comedy scripts for radio programs and popular early television shows. Among those were Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows, where in 1950 he worked alongside other young writers, including... Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, Larry Gelbart, creator of the TV show MASH, and a successful playwright with A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Very funny play, by the way. It is. 
And sell him a diamond later at Night Court fame. I had no idea she was a writer. I, oh, she, yeah. I mean, she was great on Night Court. I love Night Court. But she that's amazing to me. Yeah, it's like uh, she was kind of like, um, if you ever watched the Dick Van Dyke show, Roz. I think it was Roz, right? Yeah. It was the female writer on that. Yes, I think so. She was awesome. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he also started writing for the Phil Silvers show, which ran from 1955 to 1959. Phil Silvers. <laughs> Great. If you want to see an amazing Phil Silvers performance, watch him in It's a Mad, 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 World. Yeah. Everybody's in that goddamn movie. Everybody. Well, the movie's also 14 hours long, so, I mean, it's appropriate. It's great. Any of the names. I hate recommending that movie to people now because always oh, like it's so long it's three and a half hours long yeah, How can because I it's yeah. chock full of every com- comedic genius that yeah. has a nice little bit the okay this isn't a this yeah. isn't a, yeah. a mad 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 world well show. these are the same people that would complain and then sit down and watch 10 hours of a TV show in one day so whatever I, whatever whatever uh, his uh, Neil Simon's first produced play was Come Blow Your Horn in 1961 it took him three years to complete and ran for 678 performances on Broadway. I didn't say anything. I, <laughs> I saw that look. It was followed by two more successes, Barefoot in the Park in 1963 and The Odd Couple in 1965. Both made into films. Yes, yes. Uh, he won a Tony Award for The Odd Couple. It made him a national celebrity and... The hottest new playwright on Broadway. It was literally he rocketed in stardom with The Odd Couple. It was huge. Yeah, and also the movie adaptation had Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, yeah. so it was just pure genius. I mean, even more so, yeah. Yeah, it was it was great. Made into a TV show with Jack Klugman. And, uh, and then remade again in the last, like, five years. And then remade again. It's been yeah. remade, like, six different yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. What if they were... You know, it's, yeah, that's what it is yeah, now. Yeah. It's like the odd couple. But they're Indonesian uh, refugees from... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sure, we haven't tried that one. Uh, from the 1960s to the 1980s, he wrote for stage and screen. Some of his screenplays were based on his own works for the stage. His style ranged from farce to romantic comedy to more serious dramatic comedy. Yeah, he had a good range, especially uh, yeah. like relationship comedy dramas you know i realize that my own writing is very much similar to neil simon because you always have to have drama in your comedy yeah or comedy in your drama because otherwise everything's just boring a lot of his later work was really exploring the machinations of like older relationships yeah. and you know just, what happens uh, and, yeah and it was just very you know overall he garnered 17 tony nominations and won three awards in 1966 he had four successful productions running on broadway at the same time and in 1983 he became the only living playwright to have a new york theater the neil simon theater named in his honor yeah he earned it he very much did Paid for it, man. <laughs> he did. He a did. A lot of money he brought to Broadway. <laughs> Simon wanted to write a screenplay that took him back to his teen years of watching Mysteries, Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, and Humphrey Bogart's The Maltese Falcon, which obviously I realize it's not his movie, but everybody knows Bogart and Maltese Falcon. Right. Yeah. Simon wanted to do a spoof on those mystery novels where the reader would have no way to actually solve the crime before reading the last five pages of the novel. Uh, this is something that he was very passionate about because he loved mystery novels and he hated the ones that you couldn't figure out. Yeah, because they're cheats. Yeah, exactly. They're cheats. <laughs> you're just cheats. Exactly. Use your goddamn prepositions and articles. <laughs> so- uh, to get the film produced, Simon turned to his friend Ray Stark, who had produced his previous film, The Sunshine Boys, in 1975, in which George Burns won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. That's a great movie. Have you seen that movie? No, I have not. Uh, Sunshine Boys is, it's he, and I believe, um, the actor that played Ed Norton on uh, The Honeymooners. Uh, or Cramden? No. No. Uh, that's the <laughs> actual name of the lead <laughs> oh, character. Oh. Ralph, uh, Ralph Cramden. I don't but, know. Uh, but this gentleman, who's a great actor in his own right, they're like the, they play this old comedy team. And okay. I think they're trying to get him back together for it. It's just really great. There's this real lack of movies starring older people. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Since George Burns and. and and uh, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, since these guys passed yeah. away, nobody makes any movies about older people. They're, yeah, they're not doing – it's just not a genre that's explored at all anymore. And it blows because movies like The Sunshine Boys yeah. or uh, – what's the one with the old guys stealing the stuff? They just made a remake out of it. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Y- you know what I'm talking about. It's just they, – there was such – there was such – 
I know it's weird to say, but back then there was a, a diversity in storytelling and yeah. in generational telling yeah. that now it's just like, well, if it isn't 20 to 25 or. Yeah, yeah. You know. If the, yeah, it does. It, agreed. 100% agreed. Or a completely jacked 50 year old. <laughs> completely jacked 70 year old. It's yeah, getting to that point. <laughs> uh, Ray Stark had a history of successfully producing plays turned into films, such as The Night of the Iguana in 1964, based on the Tennessee Williams play directed by John Houston and starring Richard Burton. Richard Burton! Yes. One of the all-time great alcoholics. <laughs> uh, and Funny Girl in 1968, adapted from the musical starring Barbara Streisand. Stark had a history of working with John Houston, producing four of his films and producing five films starring Barbara Streisand. John Houston's awesome. He, Fantastic. His, his role in... An actor, too. Yeah. Because he yeah. was... Well, he directed... Uh, he directed um, Chinatown, right? Did no, he? that was... No. Was that Polanski? No. Was that was Polanski? Polanski? That was Polanski, yeah. But he was in it. John Houston was he in was it. In he was in it. He played okay. him. Well, Mr. Gitch. Yeah, Mr. Gitch. Go was, sit down, Mr. Gitch. That was a weird time. Because it was uh, Sidney... Um, Pollock. Pollock was an actor, too. Like, there was mm. a time when the directors, they, they dabbled. It was the 70s. Like, they went back and forth all the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's a lot of directors like to have their friends in their movies, too. Yeah. You know, like Blues Brothers. You know, Steven Spielberg. Right, just shows in, up. In his yeah. greatest performance ever. <laughs> Uh, so Stark would continue to work with Neil Simon over an 18-year period, working on 11 films, including The Goodbye Girl in 1977 with Richard Dreyfuss and Marsha Mason. Richard Dreyfuss! Yeah, D- Dreyfuss won an Academy Award for Best Actor for, for that film. Yes, I was very much cocaine during that period of time. <laughs> was, his whole acting was just cocaine. <laughs> Action! <laughs> California Sweet in 1978, which won Maggie Smith the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. I adore her. And that is such a great movie. It's another kind of yeah. ensemble movie about people staying at a hotel, I think. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they're, they're I, different stories, such overlapping. A, yes. It was that was also a time that was another like the old man genre where it's not really done anymore. Well, they, they're adult films, and I'm yeah. not talking like sexy nudie films. No. I'm talking no. like a, for adults, you know, yeah. for people that are like, you know. Have jobs and live real <laughs> lives. There were actual movies for those people. Right. It was a, right. you know, because look, all there were, all we had were the movies and TV. Yeah, yeah. In you, terms that of was visual. Your, that was you your know, media entertainment. You didn't yeah. have streaming. You didn't even have VCRs, pretty much. Yeah. You I know. mean, the radio was no longer, there's no longer radio dramas. There was not, it was literally the movies and, and whatever happened to be on TV then. So there was a lot more range in what was getting yeah. made because there was a lot more money to throw around. Yeah. Chapter 2 in 1977 with James Caan and Marsha Mason. Great movie. Another Caan very, playing a playwright. Yeah. Uh, so many playwrights in this place. Good <laughs> Lord. Write what you know. Uh, the Cheap Detective in 1978 starring Peter Falk, which uh, some places I read call, technically call this a, a sequel to Murder by Death, but I think it's just similar. Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah. You well, every character I play sounds exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and seems like old times in 1980 with Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase. Love that movie. Love it. Chevy Chase, ex-husband of uh, the beautiful uh, Goldie Hawn. And, oh, baby, her husband at the time is played by Charles Grodin. Oh, and Chevy yes. Chase gets in some trouble. He's like this... Uh, 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 reporter or something, and people are mm-hmm. after him, so he hides out in her house during like this huge dinner party with the mayor and stuff, and <laughs> there's all these dogs, and it's just one of those crazy kind of farce. It's Watch it. It was Chevy Chase at his prime when he was just a handsome, awesome yeah. movie star, and when Goldie Hawn was the most beautiful woman in the world. Still is very beautiful. A huge portion of Neil Simon's uh, catalog is on Amazon Prime, so highly recommend going and checking all this stuff out. Yeah, there's not very many stinkers in that bunch. No, no. So Simon went to Robert Moore to direct Murder by Death. Robert Moore had a long history of directing Broadway and off-Broadway plays, gaining fame in 1968 with the world premiere of The Boys in the Band, a groundbreaking play depicting gay characters at a party for a friend. Ooh. Yeah. Moore had directed some of Neil Simon's plays, uh, Promises, Promises, in 1968, a musical comedy based on the film The Apartment by Billy Wilder, which ran for 1,281 performances. Uh, I love The Apartment. It's one of my favorite movies. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. awesome. Well, I mean, we could do... Ten shows about uh, yeah. <laughs> all of Billy Wilder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the last of the Red Hot Lovers in 1969, which ran for 706 performances, and the Gingerbread Lady in 1970, which ran for 193 performances. 
Uh, Moore then turned to directing TV. He directed an episode of The Bob Newhart Show in 1974. Hi, Bob. <laughs> and 26 episodes of Rhoda between 1974 and 1975. Rhoda with uh, Nancy, Nancy Walker, Walker. as yeah. uh, uh, Ida Morgenstern? I think it was Ida, yeah, yeah. What are you doing, Rhoda? <laughs> it's so funny to me that she has one of the most distinctive voices, <laughs> and, and she didn't use it at all. She didn't use it at all, in, yeah. Uh, MBD. Uh, Murder by Death was Robert Moore's first feature film. He would go on to direct The Cheap Detective in Chapter 2 for Neil Simon. These were his only feature films he would direct. He would direct a bunch of TV movies between 76 and 83, uh, including Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, the uh, adaptation from the play. Mm. Uh, He has multiple Tony Award nominations. Uh, Unfortunately, he passed away from AIDS-related pneumonia in 1984. God damn it. He was was a very openly gay actor. Uh, It's uh, another director who acted a lot, too. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, he unfortunately caught AIDS and and died. Yeah, that was a trap. That whole debacle, that whole just awful period of our history, Ronald Reagan. Bad news. Bad, bad news. Yeesh. Uh, so casting. I just want to point out, yeah. he is a very theatrical director. Like, yes, you needed a theater director to direct Murder by Death because yeah. it is such a theatrical production. I was the same friend that I was mm-hmm. talking to yesterday. Uh, I think he did a production. Oh, really? A theater production of Murder, Murder by, by Death. Death. Really? Which nice. I was thinking while watching it, how much fun that would. Oh, be. Oh yeah, yeah. I would love to do that. Um, well, that's that's the thing is that Neil Simon writes. It, every actor loves being in a Neil Simon play because they're fun and they're fun to put together. Yeah, all the characters are really well defined and they all have really snappy dialogue and uh, it's just, yeah, I mean, the guy's a genius. Uh, Yes, completely. Uh, So Truman Capote was cast as eccentric multimillionaire Lionel Twain. Uh, Capote was a famous novelist having written Breakfast at Tiffany's and In Cold Blood. Uh, It was was a crime novel. It was... (laughs) It Every, wasn't a mystery. It was true crime. It was the the beautiful part is watching it is that I'm just like I can't imagine him going down to Nebraska or Kansas or wherever the hell in cold blood took place and him just ingratiating himself in that community. What the you saw Capote? Oh saw, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean you know, fictionalized versions, but yeah, yeah, just him. This little you know <laughs> obviously gay. You know, so weird. Such an odd such bird, a weirdo. but people loved him. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, big old cops would have him over for dinner. Yeah, you know, because yeah. they also didn't think he was gay. I don't know. There's this I, whole I, weird yeah. like. <laughs> that's just such a weird time. But anyway, it was like, a weird time. The guy's yeah. a genius, great writer, and he, th- I think this was one of the only movies he ever. This did, is right? the only credited role he had, and it was perfect. It had to be yeah. him. It had to be him. The ending monologue. Works so well because it's him doing it. Right, right. Uh, he did have an uncredited version of himself uh, in Annie Hall in 1977. He shows up for like two minutes. Uh, I just came to get some sherry. <laughs> Simon and Moore discussed actually replacing Capote with what they called a real actor, but it never materialized. Great. Yeah, I don't. I, I yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't know. I mean, because he wasn't the beginning when he was first revealed. He's not fantastic. <laughs> No, but that—that's what makes it charming, and that's what makes it work. He—he's just really pissy, and it's really funny. It's just he's always annoyed, and his interactions with Peter Sellers. Oh, use your gut. That was what I was saying before. It's just like he gets as a writer. He just—it's so funny that the literary (laughs) things annoy him. My sister and I used to say that all the time. Use your prepositions. (laughs) In between shooting scenes, Capote worked on his new book, Answering Prayers. Uh, yeah, that's why I wasn't very good. No, I'm just no, kidding. No, I, well, <laughs> I never read Answering I prayers. never did either. Um, Alec Guinness was cast as blind butler James Sir Bensonmum. James Sir Bensonmum. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Benson, sir? No. Benson? No, Bensonmum. Guinness won the Academy Award for Best Actor and the BAFTA Award for Best Actor in 1957 for his role in The Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, man. Uh, he was also nominated for an Oscar in 1952 for his performance in The Lavender Hill Mob. Uh, Bridge on the River Kwai is amazing. Movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. David Lean, right? Yes. Yeah, it's, yes. It's it's that guy was. Uh, he told epic stories epically. Oh, oh. That, that's a three-hour movie nobody ever complained about. No, no. Yeah. It's the Lawrence of Arabia too. It's yeah. like you yeah. know, 
he was uh, the guy so, knew epics. He did. He did. He was uh, Alec Guinness was nominated for in 1958 for the Academy Award for Best Writing Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium for his screenplay adapted from Joyce Carey's novel The Horse's Mouth. That's complicated. Uh, I didn't I didn't realize that he was a writer too. So like yeah, that's, they all that's, did everything. They're all great at everything, aren't they? <laughs> Jedi's can do anything. <laughs> It was while working on this movie that he received the script for Star Wars. He would read it between scenes in his dressing room. It's like, hey, come, you guys have to come in here. Please, <laughs> come. This is hilarious. Hilarious. Let me read you some of this dialogue. Oh, come in. These aren't the droids you're looking for. What is a droid? <laughs> is anyone here? Peter, Peter, do you know what a droid is? Look, I don't know what a droid is. I'm just looking to get me sir, a, a drink or something, sir. Sir, hey, uh, could you just drop the act for five seconds, please? Just for five seconds. No. I, that was some behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, no, I great. can't do it. Sorry. No. <laughs> uh, Alec Guinness was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor for uh, Star Wars, which I apparently didn't realize. Yeah. Um, Star Wars got some nods. Well, it was, I mean, it was huge. They kind of had to. Yeah, yeah. They had to give it something. <laughs> Neil Simon took such a shine to Alec Guinness during production that he told Guinness that if he did not like anything in the movie, he'd immediately rewrite it for him. But Guinness assured him that it was great fun. Oh, it's great fun playing Benson, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> he spent some of his days off on the movie strolling around Beverly Hills. Uh, he also used his off time writing a show based on the work of Jonathan Swift. Everybody's doing everything. Nobody's just doing this movie. Everybody's got six different jobs. Yes. I hate that. I hate when you're working with somebody and they're like hustling their next job. It's like, dude, just be present for five seconds. <laughs> There's a lot of downtime in movies. I'm there is. Joking. There is. Uh, Nancy Walker as the deaf mute cook Yetta. Uh, during her five-decade-long career, she may be best remembered for her long-running roles as Mildred on Macmillan and Wife, and as Ida Morgenstern, Rhoda's mother, who first appeared on several episodes of the Mary Tyler Moore Show and later became a prominent recurring character on the spinoff series Rhoda. With her fiery red hair. Uh, I don't know if it's because of her that uh, the director started directing Rhoda or if it was the other way around. I'm, I'm assuming she suggested him. Small town? Yeah, yeah. Uh, She's she, amazing, too, by the way. And like I said, in this, I mean, it's so hard to pick favorite parts from this movie because it's just so great. But <laughs> the scenes between Benson, Mum, mm-hmm. and what's her name? Uh, Nancy Walker. I uh, know, but what's Or no, uh, Yetta. Yetta. It, having the, having an academy, Sir Alec Guinness <laughs> playing this blind butler, and she's the deaf maid, and their interactions are hilarious because he's, you know, he's just, all right, I need you to, dinner would be at nine. And she's just sitting there, like, smoking a cigarette, not paying attention, handing him these notes. And the notes are hilarious. Hi, my name is Yetta, and I'm a mate. I don't speak English. <laughs> yeah. This note was written I, for me. I, I can't also, read this yeah. note. I also me. don't speak English. I but, don't. Uh, it's great. I, yeah. The, and you're like, oh, ew, how does that work? Blah, blah, blah. And then by the end, you're like, oh, okay, well, it was all manufactured. You know, it's, it all makes uh, all the yeah, ridiculous yeah. BS does strangely make sense by the it end. It works because it doesn't work. Right. That's, yeah, that's the amazing part. She was also a film and television director, lending her talents to the Mary Tyler Moore Show, on which she also made several guest appearances. Walker has multiple Emmy and Tony Award nominations. This was actually her final theatrical performance, choosing instead to focus on TV work after. It's a lot easier, especially when you get older. TV's just a nice... Steady gig, baby. You go to work, yeah. you do your job, and you come yeah. home. Usually it's in L.A. where you live. You don't yeah. have to go on location. It gets tough doing movies and, you know, flying places for three months. You know, it's not put up well, in nice hotels and stuff, but it's, yeah. still, it's, like, it's still a lot of work, and it's still hard to be away from home. And it's, it's TV's guaranteed job for, yeah. like, five, six months. You know, you, yeah. you know you're going to keep working. You know you're going to get It's got a, a routine. It's mm-hmm. got you can work on a character. You know, yeah. it's not – It's it, it gets to be – you know, probably pretty fun and pretty easy. I, she probably wanted to be close to home, have had family or something. You know what I mean? Like, Let's I, do I a seance and find out. We'll ask her. <laughs> uh, Peter Sellers as Inspector Sidney Wang. Oh, yes. Very, very problematic. That was the very first laugh that my nephew did was the white Wang comment. <laughs> He just giggled so hard. Uh, Wang is based on Earl Dare Biggers, Chinese police detective Charlie Chan, and is appropriately accompanied by his adopted Japanese son, Willie, played by Richard Narita. Charlie Chan always had a number one son. And, okay, before everybody starts freaking out about cultural appropriation, I get it. But the thing about this is this is also uh, 
a dig and a nod at the genre yeah. because yeah. Charlie Chan was always played by a white actor. Always. In crappy makeup with the, uh, with the yeah. racist teeth and the very accent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not using propositions and just say, ah, uh, talking in, in riddle. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it was BS. Anti-Asian crap, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, he wanted to play on that. Like he wanted to. You, you had to have a white character play that part, yeah. to get that dig in. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To, it, and and for it to work, yeah. Otherwise, exactly. otherwise, it would it would be really racist and really stereotypical. If you had an actual Chinese man playing this part, right. it would be awful, right? But also, you know, so it it isn't done to be disrespectful. It's yeah. done to point out. The disrespect that was Correct. done. Yes, yes. And who better to play it than Peter Sellers, exactly. who, who well, just does characters? Honestly, the first choice I kind of would uh, rather yeah, see Orson yeah. Welles. I love, yeah, he, I love Peter Sellers, <laughs> and he's a genius. But watching that man chew the scenery—that oh, big, he would have been great. Yeah, oh, he would have been Wells. fantastic. I, I agree. I agree. He uh, would be. Hey, number one son. <laughs> Orson Welles was originally considered for the role, but was unable to accept because he was appearing in a play in Italy. Uh, Peter Sellers reportedly played several practical jokes on cast and crew during filming, including once calling Neil Simon up and imitating Alec Guinness and demanding a rewrite of a key scene in the middle of the night. Yeah. Yeah, neither Guinness nor Simon were very amused by this. The thing about Peter Sellers, (laughs) Peter Sellers is a genius. Yes. He is one of the greatest comedic actors ever to grace the silver screen. He was a sociopath. Yeah. He, he, he was, was a not a good dude. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> he was very mean. Very troubled man. Yes. But almost positive he was a clinically diagnosed sociopath, which made him an amazing actor because mm-hmm. he could slip into every role, you know? Yeah, yeah. He didn't care. He wasn't. He didn't care if you got offended. He didn't give it. He didn't no. care. They, they chalked that up to grit of genius yeah, back then, yeah. but he was just kind of a sociopath. Uh, Sellers was also an avid photographer. He shot photos of the cast while they were assembled in the dining room set. He gave each of them uh, 11 by 14 color prints of his work at the close of production. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice, but also a little uh, (laughs) narcissistic. (laughs) Immediately after completing this movie, Sellers was so convinced it was going to bomb, he convinced the producers to buy back his percentage share in the movie. Coward! Yeah. Which is funny, because the movie made quite a profit. (laughs) It so, did. Uh, not too smart. Well, I can. Sorry, I get man. it, man. It's a. If you don't get it, I get it. Like if you don't understand the film, yeah. yeah. You know, he's just probably like, this is just a farce. You know, what is going to happen? Especially yeah. if you're shooting it, it's like, well, I can imagine him thinking that everyone's going to watch it and go, I, they're going to hate this. And I think yeah. he was insecure about his own performance, probably. I, and probably. I think that's what I mean, it was because I look, can imagine. Would, I mean, that would be it. Would be tough. You know, he's under a lot of makeup. He's yeah. playing, you know, but he was really, really, really fun. He was fantastic in the part. I mean, there's it, so much depth to all these caricatures. That's what's yeah, the beauty yeah. of this is you have archetypes. You have, uh, you know, takeoffs on, on the greatest detectives of right. literature. And, but even though they're just caricatures, they're so deeply nuanced that they're characters of their own. Yeah. They transcend yeah. what they're parodying. Right, right. Completely. David Niven and Maggie Smith as Dick and Dora Charleston. Oh, Dickie. <laughs> and don't move, darling. It seems like there's a scorpion on the bed. Oh, Dickie. <laughs> we need to get out of here, Dickie. I got bit by the scorpion. <laughs> oh, just calm down, dear. Yeah, that was, that was so fantastic. Are you sure the scorpion was fake? Oh, yes, of course, dear. Yeah. You're sure? <laughs> we need to go to the hospital. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Just oh, it's fine. Fine. 30 yeah. minutes. Uh, they spoofed the Dashiell Hammett characters Nick and Nora Charles from the Thin Man film series. Super popular film oh, series. Huge, People don't even remember huge. these, but in the 30s, man, it was like James Bond, you know? It was yeah. like these were the huge – these were the franchises back then. Yeah. Uh, the Charles Wirehaired Terrier Asta is also lampooned, appearing here named Myron. Uh, that was Phoebe's one complaint is they should have showed more of the dog. Yeah, well. <laughs> My concern, literally, as watching it, I was like, oh, my God, does something happen to the dog? No, it's a <laughs> I comedy. Know, I know. Maggie Smith is one of the few artists to achieve the triple crown of acting, having received highest achievements for film, television, and theater, winning two Academy Awards, a Tony Award, and four Primetime Emmy Awards. It's so hard to pick a favorite in this movie because everybody is just yeah. goddamn perfect, but I I just think she edges everybody out just a little bit she's, because she's so funny. 
I and he gives yes. her the best lines, honestly. Yeah, the way that the dialogue drips out of her mouth is yeah. it's it's like music almost. I mean, it's just that nobody has the timing or I don't know how to explain it. The je ne sais quoi. Yeah, but yeah. Maggie Smith has got it, and she is just so watchable and so hilarious, and, and she plays that part perfectly. Neil Simon writes women very, very well. Yeah, yeah. Because I would agree with you, except that my favorite in this movie is Eileen Brennan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's he writes women so well, and it's why do you have all those so wrestling funny. magazines in your <laughs> office? Don't worry about it, Swain. Uh, so Maggie Smith won a Best Actress Oscar for the prime of Miss Jean Brody in 1969. I was kind of hoping that eventually she'd win a Grammy because I really want her to be an EGOT. Yeah, let's know. get her get her on tape. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to say, uh, Maggie Smith, most people know her, obviously, from now, from uh, Harry, uh, Potter. Harry Potter and playing McGonagall. But she was so beautiful in this movie. She's still beautiful. So absolutely beautiful. She's been working for like 60 years. Yeah, she's, I, she's a national treasure. And I'll tell you what, man. Get her reading some children's book or something, and we'll get her a Grammy. Yeah, yeah. We'll get her the spoken word Grammy or something. Come on, people. <laughs> Between takes on the set, Dame Maggie Smith and James Coco played a lot of Scrabble together. I forget how just incredible James Coco was. Yeah. His take on Hercule Poirot yeah. is... Delicious. And, oh, my God, James Cromwell, known as Jamie yeah, Cromwell yeah. back then, old Jamie Cromwell, his first movie, this is the guy from Babe uh, and he also from All in the Family. You know him from a bunch of stuff. Oh, yeah. Myrna Loy was originally offered the part of Dora Charleston. She originated the role of Nora Charles in the Thin Man franchise, but she declined, later stating that... It would have been ridiculous to have Myrna Loy doing Myrna Loy. She also stated that she didn't want... My ass pinched by David Newman. David Niven had won a Best Actor Oscar for Separate Tables in 1958. Is that because it is in the script that he pinches her ass? Or was she, was well, she saying know. that he was a cheeky... No, she was saying that he would have done it regardless. Oh, yeah. Well, he would have done it very charmingly. <laughs> I think he had a reputation for being a, a bit of a ladies' man. They were all jerks back then. Yeah. Uh, David Niven had written a book, Bring on the Empty Horses, which was quickly climbing to the top of the bestseller charts all over the U.S. while he was filming... Uh, Dame Maggie Smith and David Niven also starred in the film Death on the Nile in 1978 by Agatha Christie. Uh, yeah, David Niven was f- phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, I, always. I mean, he was a phenomenal actor. He he was one of those guys. There were this set of actors that were just classy. Yeah. They just exuded class. And he they, he played on that in this movie. Yeah. About how erudite he is and, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's just, there. you know, he, Cary Grant. There was this, a set of actors that were just, you know, these really classy, you know, you want to have a martini in a club. Yeah. Know? They're it's, always standing around holding They dress for dinner, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You got to wear your suit and tails to go to. Your dinner jacket. <laughs> yeah, you got like jacket, 16 yeah. different suits you got to bring on a trip for every costume change. <laughs> James Coco is Milo Perrier. Perrier is a spoof of Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. With the your boons. <laughs> you <laughs> have boons. You, 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 you have boons. Uh, <laughs> no, monsieur. I'm talking about my boons. <laughs> so, that opening scene with him and James Cromwell is so funny. You have chocolate on your face. <laughs> it's just... Get it off of me. It's the only way to make that because it was so such a stereotypical accent, but both of them make it so funny. Well, yes, because they so they funny. commit. Yeah, uh, he arrives at the house with his heavily French-accented chauffeur Marcel Cassette, uh, James Cromwell, in his first feature film role. He's so young, which is fascinating because he's so good right out of the gate. Yeah, so I think he had already done some TV. He had, yes, yes, he had done point. TV. He, I mean, he he wasn't just out of nowhere, but this was his first feature. Uh, he was James Coco was the recipient of a Primetime Emmy Award, a Drama Desk Award, and three Obie Awards, as well as nominations for a Tony Award, an Academy Award, and two Golden Globe Awards. Yeah, the guy's the guy's got it, and he's a very sweet human, and yes. he is an activist, and I think he chained himself or glued himself to something and got arrested recently. Oh wow! Yeah, the guy puts his money where his mouth is. He's a sweetheart. Wow. Nice. Coco had appeared in Simon's Last of the Red Hot Lovers in 1972 on Broadway. Coco would later appear in two more Simon Neil Simon films, The Cheap Detective in 1978 and Only When I Laugh in 1981. It only hurts when I laugh. I don't know James Coco as well, but I will say after seeing him in this, I need to see everything he's ever done. Yeah, the guy is just absolutely... He pops, man. He, he's got that energy and, and that... Ch- There's certain actors and certain... And I don't want to... 
certain bigger actors, I would yeah. say, because yeah. he's a he's a plump man. Yeah, but he is so graceful. Yeah, and in control of his physicality, yes. and you watch his yes. performance, and everything is just precise. And there's no movement that is not precise. Yeah, and and wasted, and everything, eye movements, all of it is yeah. just impeccable. When, Chef's kiss. When he comes back out wearing the, <laughs> the, butler's, the clothes. butler's clothes, like it is so brilliant. <laughs> He was so great. And the whole, I'm not a Frenchie, I'm a Belgie. <laughs> like, what? I'm not oh. a Frenchie. But even him, even at that moment when he says that line, he's like, I just made fun of myself. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, it's just, it's, it's so, so funny. funny. And, the, and, and, you know, all of these characters have these incredible egos, too. Oh, it's just, oh my God. Huge egos. Peter Falk is Sam Diamond. Uh, Diamond is a parody of another Dashiell Hammett character, the Maltese Falcon's hard-boiled Sam Spade. Look, I get $50 a day in expenses if I can get them. I ain't rich like you guys. Uh, he definitely was doing a caricature of Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, she. And, and this is Casablanca character. It's so fantastic. Uh, Falk starred as Columbo, of course, for like 30 years. Uh, excuse me, sir. Uh, just one more thing. Sure. <laughs> Uh, he's been nominated for a ton of, of Emmys and Oscars. First person to be nominated for both in the same year, doing it two years in a row. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You want to see Peter Falk as an actor, Yeah. watch Cassavetti's films. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's incredible. And it was a – I hadn't really been exposed to Cassavetti's before college. Mm-hmm. And I had this film class – was a professor that was obsessed with Cassavetti's. Oh, yeah. So we saw pretty much everything that he did, which I'm so <laughs> glad because – I didn't realize, you know. I mean, I knew Cassavetes from like TV and stuff. And yeah, yeah. Same with Jenna Rollins and same with Peter Falk. But man, it it is so uncomfortable and so insane. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. If you like film, if you like independent film, watch Cassavetes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Falk between scenes paced back and forth in front of his trailer so often that producer Ray Stark gifted him a treadmill. Nice. <laughs> and that was a 1980s treadmill or 70s treadmill. 70s right. treadmill. There was no electric no. motors or anything, I don't think. <laughs> Falk was also involved in the editing and post-production of a movie for television in which he had recently starred, Phoenix Loves Griffin, which was later retitled as Griffin and Phoenix in 1976. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't like, uh, I want Griffin to come first. Uh, and <laughs> Phoenix should come second. Uh, I, I, I just didn't hit him for me. Uh, for more on Falk, please uh, listen to our deep dive episode on Columbo. Yeah. Hey, you can hear my crappy impersonation. <laughs> Ad nauseum. That is not true. Your impersonation of Falk is very good. Oh, sure. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Only done out by your impersonation of Guinness. Your, your Guinness is very <laughs> good. Okay. <laughs> uh, Diamond is accompanied by his long-suffering, hard-boiled, sexy but needy secretary, Tess Skeffington, played by Eileen Brennan. He continually denigrates and mistreats. Uh, her name is a riff on Spade secretary, Effie Perrine. Oh, yeah. The long-suffering secretary. I mean, oh that, that's God. the trope of these yeah. film noir yeah. and these uh, these noir books was the long-suffering gal Friday yeah. that loves, that's definitely in love with the detective. Oh, yeah. And will do anything for him, but he doesn't have time for her. She... Well, I mean, he does. He calls her his mistress, and, like, she's kind of like, eh. I don't like kissing. Leave me alone. <laughs> that was the funniest thing, to Kiss me, Sam. I don't, you know, I don't like kissing. Leave me alone. Go back to my bodybuilding mags. <laughs> Why do you have so many wrestling magazines, Sam? Uh, uh, Eileen Brennan made her film debut in the satire Divorce American Style in 1967, followed by a supporting role in Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show in 1971, which, Great movie. which earned her a BAFTA Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. She gained further critical acclaim for her role as Captain Doreen Lewis in Private Benjamin in 1980, for which she received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Oh, you want to see... That's the best Eileen Brennan performance yeah. ever. Yeah. Because she plays such a hard... Her and, and Goldie Hawn, my God, it was gold. Yeah. Private Benjamin's yeah. a hilarious movie. And it was... This was like... This was one of the, you know, this was women in military. It was yeah. the first women in military. Yeah. And uh, Goldie plays this spoiled brat who joins the military because they tell her it's going to be all these great things. You know, the recruiter <laughs> lies to her. And then old Eileen Brennan is the is reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smacking her in the face. She actually re- reprised the role in a television adaptation, winning both a Golden Globe and a Primetime Emmy Award. Oh, I used to watch that show. It was a good show. Yeah. Uh, when she had a long lunch break, she would dash home to spend it with her two preschool sons. She would later appear in The Cheap Detective with Peter Falk. 
Uh, Eileen Brennan started another old dark house mystery genre comedy, Clue, in 1985, an adaptation of the board game Clue, in which she played Mrs. Peacock. Nice. And I think most people probably know her from that. Uh, the old dark house genre was, was revived in the mid-1970s and 80s. It was really big in the 50s. The Spiral St- Staircase in 1975, starring Jacqueline Bissett and Christopher Plummer. The Cat and the Canary in 1978, starring Honor Blackman and Olivia Hussey. The Private Eyes in 1980, starring Don Knotts and Tim Conway. The private Eyes <laughs> watching That's you. actually what that song is about. It's, uh, That's from the movie, bud. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, it was in the movie. What? Yes. In 1980? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, Private Eyes was the Hollow Notes movie yeah. thing. Okay. But yeah, the steric the uh, cartoons use that all the time. Yeah. Scooby Doo, you know, there was always in a big house and I'm what I'm really surprised is they didn't do the in one door out the other door chase scene in Clue. Yeah. You know, they kind of yeah. did a version of that with the room disappearing, but you know, there's always that scene shot down the hallway and there's like five doors on either right, side of the hallway right. and one goes in one door and comes out the other door and comes out the other door and then they meet each other. It was like that's one of the classic bits. Yeah. Yeah. They played around with it a little bit. Yeah. They don't it doesn't they don't really we don't really have the old dark house uh, stuff anymore like no, they tried it a bit in the 90s. There was a few remakes of but they made it so big and supernatural yeah. and there wasn't, you know, it, the, like, I guess, like, the closest thing to, like, the mystery stuff would be, uh, what was that movie? Everybody loved Chris Evans in the sweater. Knives Out. Yeah. And that's not, that's not really, I mean, it's kind of, but no, not No, but really. it's, it's, that's the thing is, like, the beauty of this movie is it points out the absurdity of most of these. Yeah, yeah. Stories, which is, you know, you have this mystery, mystery, mystery. And if it's a real mystery, you can usually figure it out. Yeah. And or they do what they point out at the end of this is just, you know, completely blindside you yeah, with BS and be like, "Wait, what?" Introduce 18 new characters in the last 5 minutes yeah. that you had no idea. I my favorite, my absolute favorite trope of this in this movie is the dark and stormy night where it's only storming in out the window <laughs> right. and not in the door they just came in. And then it eventually starts raining when David yeah. Tim is like, eh, it's really yeah. raining now, Dale. <laughs> uh, Elsa Lanchester is Jessica Marbles. Marbles is a parody of Ag- Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. Uh, she gained... So She's fantastic in this, yeah. She gained recognition as the eponymous Bride of Frankenstein in 1935. It's so crazy that that's her, but she's yeah. so... Oh, Miss Marples. She's so good at that. And her... her <laughs> she is. She... The, the character uh, that she's based on, you know, had a long-running nurse that would take care of her. Yeah. And, yeah. and in this, her nurse is so old that she takes care of her nurse because she comes, you know, walking in. Yeah. Wheeling this old lady in, and they're all like to the old lady, oh, hello, Mrs. Marbles. Like, oh, no, that's my nurse. I'm blah, blah, blah. And the nurse is like, cry me poo. <laughs> so funny. Icky poo. She was hilarious, by the way, yeah. that old lady. She was great. She was Ugh. great. Uh, Lanchester played supporting roles through the 1940s and 1950s. She was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for Come to the Stable in 1949 and Witness for the Prosecution in 1957. Uh, following her husband, uh, oh my God, what's it? Charles, Charles Lawton's death in 1962, Lanchester resumed her career with appearances in such Disney films as Mary Poppins in 1964, Mary Poppins, That Darn Cat in 1965, great movie, and Blackbeard's Ghost in 1968. Uh, she also appeared in the successful horror movie Willard in 1971. Oh, such a creeps. Willard is about a kid. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, man, the scene where he drowns all the rats is so creepy. So creepy. Uh, and the sequel to Willard was Ben. With, yeah. Uh, Michael with Jack- uh, Michael Jackson. Ben, the two of us need look no more. In between shooting scenes, Lanchester was busy working with Charles Hyam on the biography of her late husband, Charles Lawton. Yeah, everybody's doing double duty. Of Who's course. not got two jobs on there? What, are they all broke? Everybody's got to work six jobs? This Oof. is why it was so good, because everybody was super was aware and did everything. <laughs> no, it was it's just the fact that if you have people that are willing to be doing so many other things, you oh, know, know they're going to be good. I'm just teasing them, but it's just like, geez, man. Uh, her biography of her husband was scheduled by Doubleday to be published in May of 1976. She'd actually met Charles Lawton in 1927, married him two years later, and stayed with him until his death in 1962. They appeared in over 12 films together during their careers. Uh, unfortunately, Murder by Death was one of her last film roles. Uh, I think she was in a couple other movies after this before she passed away. 
In the film, Marbles appears as hardy, robust, and tweed-clad, wheeling a frail, ancient-looking, seemingly senile companion, her ancient nurse, Miss Withers, played by Estelle Winwood, for whom she is now caring, who everyone initially assumes is Miss Marbles. Uh, Estelle Winwood was a reluctant film actor. She started working before film became popular and didn't like the medium. Okay. <laughs> Which is fascinating to me. Stuck that, with it for quite a while. Know, there was somebody that was alive before movies <laughs> and said, eh. Yeah, but she, I mean, 106 years later, she's uh, yeah. still doing a movie. Uh, Elsa Lanchester, Lanchester, excuse me, Elsa Lanchester and Estelle Winwood actually hated working together. They'd appeared in a bunch of us stuff together. They had a decades-long feud that made their scenes very stressful. Well, then why hire her? Because they, they were both another, perfect well, I guess the they were, but it's just like, ah, man, it's like, well, I know you guys hate each other. I'm going to make you work together every day. Uh, this was Estelle Winwood's final film performance as she died just a couple months later. Oh, yeah. spite and hatred. Uh, I think it's because she was old. She was like a billion years old. All right. All right, ageist. <laughs> uh, so during the production, Neil Simon said, We should have taped the first read-through of the script and released it as a comedy album. It was a classic. The first reading is where I see what works and what doesn't. It was the best one I've ever witnessed for any of my plays or films. Simon was on set every day to make any necessary rewrites. While he wasn't rewriting this film, he sat in his trailer and worked on a new play and screenplay he was writing. Yeah, because everybody had to do something else. Everybody had to do. It was a twofer. <laughs> it was, I could just see the director being like, okay, let's get everybody. Where's everybody at? Where What's everybody? Are you all writing your other projects? <laughs> Come on, man. We got to get done today. Hey, hey, Niven. Niven, put your typewriter away. Put it away. <laughs> Uh, just, just uh, five more sentences, please. Just one more page. One more page. Uh, the film was shot entirely at Warner Brothers Studio in Burbank. Uh, the Country Road was built on stage 16 of the Burbank Studios. This was contrary to the traditional practice of contemporary movie making of using actual locations for exteriors. The reason for creating the set was to give the movie the look of the 1930s and 40s detective genre movies, which have a very distinctive style. It's a cross between that and... The Universal Studios tour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like with the yeah. wonky bridge. But that's the whole point. I mean, everything is manufactured right. in the movie. I mean, in, yeah. in the conceit of the movie. In the movie. Yeah. Uh, Truman Capote's character completely manufactures everything that's going on. Everything yes. has yes. been plan uh, planned down to the nub. Yeah, yeah. Every single, every single thing. Uh, instead of process photography, a large rotating drum with cyclorama of painted trees and branches and real shrubbery attached moves around as the cars remain positioned. Oh, it gives it such an old-timey feel yeah, when oh, you yeah. have that, the, 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 the guy lights. cranking. Yeah. He's just cranking that. You see the same tree go by 16 different <laughs> times while two guys just kind of jostle the car. I did a movie where we did that. Uh, but what we did is we took two lights and I stood on a... Uh, ladder and just kind of rolled these lights over and nice. made it look like uh, headlights cars going over the by. car as yeah. we jostled it. Yeah the, yeah, the autos were jostled in place to simulate movement and the exterior scenery outside moves by on a leafy carousel. It was a filmic technique used in the 20s. Uh, eight dozen evergreens, hundreds of shrubs and assorted foliage, and tons of dirt were used to create the country road. This was a costly bit of landscaping according to the movie's production notes. Mm, five grand. Yeah, well, I mean, it was they got what they wanted and it worked. Uh, construction on the mansion began in August of 1975. Although an elaborate and complex edifice, the structure was completed in record time. While the script described the house as Victorian, production designer Stephen B. Grimes took some artistic liberties. Also, when you're working at the studio, you've got the studio construction team, which is on yes. effing point. Man. Yes. And those guys know what they're doing. Guys and gals. They uh, they actually loved working on it because it, it forced them to actually create some of this like vintage stuff. Yeah. And they, they didn't want to... It's, normally they're just creating facades and things, and they actually had to create like amazing stuff that they were... It was shining their craft. Yeah, I was giving them a chance to do a little something different. Yeah. In his mind, Grimes pictured the kind of American estates which millionaires such as the Hearsts or Morgans used to bring over stone by stone from Europe. Furnishings for the mansion, according to set decorator Marvin March, were valued at more than $25 million. Damn. They used antiques from the Mark Hopkins estate in San Francisco, antiques rented from exclusive Los Angeles shops, and some old pieces from the Burbank Studios property department. In addition to the classic furniture pieces, there were authentic suits of armor, period paintings, porcelain daggers, and old swords. And many stuffed animal heads. Because of numerous special effects sequences, some copies of paintings had to be created. Peepholes were present in the movable eyes of several of the paintings. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, and oh my God. not just eyes, but little tongues. The greatest is when the dog thing, and he's like, there's a, Dickie, yeah. there's a tongue coming out of there. Yes, there's a tongue. Yeah, he's just like, yeah, whatever. Don't pay attention, darling. Don't give it any notice. The screaming woman sound used as a doorbell is Fay Ray's screams from King Kong in 1933, uh, which was, it, it was, it seemed like it was going to be overused. And it kind of was, but it worked every time. It's one of those things where it gets overused and then comes back to being funny. Yes, you, yes. you, you do it so much that it, it is funny again, uh, which this, is one of the things I love. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Uh, this was one of the first films to employ product placement. You can see a case of Coca-Cola in the kitchen. Oh, you can. Oh, yeah. It's right front and center. It's so uh, not – it's just so, like, normal now that you'd barely even notice yeah, it. But yeah. back then, it was like, woo. Yeah, it's, it's funny because – a lot of people, when you first start watching the movie, you think that it's set in, like, the 30s or 40s, but it's very obviously not. No. <laughs> well, I mean, you just look at Truman. Yeah, you know? yeah. He's complete. Everybody's dressed as their character. Right. But his character is a, you know, a, a modern man. Yeah, yeah. He's, yes, very much so. The movie received mixed reviews from critics. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune gave the film three stars out of four and wrote that... After getting off to a shaky start, the picture quickly hits the speedball comedy pace. It doesn't lose until the unsatisfactory unraveling of the mystery. He, uh, <sighs> he obviously didn't get the movie. He didn't get a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know? No disrespect to the, the poor man but, but, and, and, and what he went through, but I... Did not like him as a critic. He was just I, so pissy. The thing I don't get is that he obviously didn't like it, but he still gave it three out of four stars. Well, he didn't make any sense with his reviews. His stars and his talking well, never matched up. I don't get Gene Siskel. Well, good. <laughs> you don't have to worry about him anymore. Uh, the movie... It all went to their head, man. When oh, Siskel... No, was, the, yeah. Nobody give... It, there was a few critics, Vince Camby, uh, yeah. I forget her name. Pauline Kale. Pauline Kale. Yeah. That were, were amazing... Yeah, great critical writers, writers, Amazing and writers. won awards deservedly so, and put thought and, re- and read some of their articles, read yeah, some of their and reviews. Ebert was that way too. He was a great writer. He was. He was better than Siskel. But I yeah. think when Siskel and Ebert rose to popularity, they had this PBS show at the movies that mm-hmm. just blew up and then became a syndicated show, and then they were it. Yeah, you yeah. know, every movie poster, if it had if it had a Siskel or an Ebert quote. It was two, a guaranteed hit. Two thumbs up. A thumbs up your butt. And <laughs> in, uh, but it's just you. Cisco was just all over the place. Yeah, you know, yeah. Ebert loved. It seemed like Ebert loved movies. Yeah, and kind of wanted to love movies and got annoyed at movies that should. You know, right. like his criticism made sense because they should have been better. Like he's like, if you're going to do all this, make it better. But Cisco yeah. had a way of kind of like. <laughs> Four stars, but it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, or sense. you know, or he's arguing about a movie he would rather see than right. the movie that is on there. I just right. look. I I never really liked Siskel. Yeah, no, no. I'm, God rest his soul. Watching the PBS show, I agree. I always agreed more with Ebert I, because Ebert was, was a populist. Ebert loved movies. Siskel yeah. was a Siskel thing. was but, a snob. But Siskel, yeah, exactly. He seemed like a a, a, a guy who never made it. Yeah, and just was looking. Siskel was looking for things to dislike, where I think Ebert was looking for things to like. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Yes. That is exactly it. Wasted 20 minutes when yes. I could have just said that. <laughs> so, Murder by Death made $32.5 million at the box office. Uh, I do not know what the budget cost. It was much lower than that. I would say um, probably 8 Yeah. I don't even think it was that high, to Six, be honest. maybe? I don't even think it was that high. Well, I, you the, you had to pay the actors because you had a little big, you know, it, it wasn't... I don't. I want to say, I w- honestly, in 1976, I think it was between two and a half and three million dollars. Really? I well, think so. let's uh, look that up and we'll, we'll clarify I it have tried. The... It is not in Really? Place. Yes. Man, <laughs> that is why I didn't include it. I would, I would have included otherwise, but it, yeah, I want to say I'll it was between calls. three. Yeah. <laughs> Call uh, Simon. But the, the, the 32, he's, yeah, okay. let's have another seance, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> How much did your movie cost, Neil? Uh, $17 million. Thirty-two and a half doesn't seem like a lot back then or now, but it was equivalent of one hundred and seventy million dollars today, which is a great independent movie. Yeah, I mean, great, especially a comedy. Yeah, you know, and a genre comedy. That's a, it's a, that's a big hit. Yeah, it's it is the studio money. If you've not seen it, and I did not see this movie until we we chose to review it and and go over it for the show, but I I will say I wish I had. Yeah. I, I write much like this movie. Yes, it's weird to me <laughs> that you haven't really. seen this movie because yeah. 
You rip it off. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, I mean, but you honestly, do have kind a, of. I well, didn't even realize. Maybe but. you're just uh, the reincarnation of um, Neil Simon. Neil Simon. I, my writing is very similar to his. I did not realize, and I've not seen a lot of his stuff. Okay. I, I need to get to get more into it. Although, I'm a huge fan of Clue, and this Clue obviously borrowed heavily from this movie. Oh, 100%. Uh, which, it, and I don't, I think that it, I think when they were doing Clue, and we'll eventually cover Clue. Sure. But uh, I think when they were doing it, the, the writer realized this was the only way to make a board game adaptation work. Well, of course. I mean, it's, yeah. Look, Clue's great. But yeah. Clue's not Murdered by Death. No, no, totally. And anybody who's a fan of Clue, you're going to love Murdered by Death. Yes. And if yes. you're a fan of mysteries, and if you're a fan of great acting and great dialogue, and and watching Sir Alec Guinness, oh old Obi-Wan, old Ben He's Kenobi, being funny as hell, sitting there so nude. Great. So great. new. Yeah, can you imagine um, him just being like? I don't think that was finally, him, by the way, because he never show his face. No, no. Uh, it might have been a body double, but he wasn't really. I new, want dude. to believe that he was. That was him. Inspect the body. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's just the way that the actors play off of each other, and in the ending, I don't want to spoil. I'm not going to spoil it. Even though this is a I don't even know if I movie. can spoil the ending because it is so complicated. The ending, it's but the funny thing is, is the ending seems complicated, but I it's know, just I basically know. pointing out how absurd yes. these mysteries are yes. and how absurd these detectives are. Yeah. yeah you know? Yeah. And and uh and done in such a way. And like I said, having Truman Capote, a true crime author himself. Right. Deliver this monologue, also because he was the he, strange to say he was the next generation of yeah. crime authors. So yeah. it was almost like he, as Truman Capote, was critiquing and criticizing the people that came before him yes. for cheating the audience with their BS endings. It's just brilliant, and and yet yeah, it gets even weirder <laughs> and weirder and weirder. There's the, robots. Oh jeez. Well. <laughs> The best part is there's a whole part at the end where everybody comes in to solve the crime, one after the other. Yeah. And not to spoil anything, but Alec Guinness must have been having the time oh. of his life with that scene. Yes. Watching the changes every – Oh, uh, yes. Especially when he's like, yeah, you're, you're not even a man at all. Oh, and my God. Like, oh. oh, my God. That is – it was so – you could see it in his face, mm-hmm. the transformation. Oh, yeah. It was so brilliant. It just shows what a great actor he is. And this is what I love. These actors that are so respected and so, you know, so many of them are self-important. And, you know, they won't ever, you know, dispar- disparage or, or besmirch their reputation. The guy is having a blast just being a oh, fool. Yeah, yeah. And just, you could – you could tell he is having the time of his life. There were about 50 major award nominations between this cast, and all of them were just like, this is fun. <laughs> yeah. We're doing this. Yes, and they all committed 100%. Yeah. 100%. And there's not a bad uh, performance in it. The kid playing the Japanese of Dr. Richard Son, Narita is fantastic. He's got, hey, Pop. He's got he's such so, great time. To- he's the, he seems so out of place, yeah. but it, but he's the only one that's actually in the right time. Right, <laughs> and he's also like that. the right person. You know, he's yeah. actually culturally appropriate. So, yeah. But uh, but there's so much to love about this movie, and it's just one of those classics that you don't get anymore. Yeah. You just don't get. You don't get these neat little self-contained weird little comedies with yeah. huge stars anymore. No, 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 no. I mean, this that's is like an independent not. film with the arguably some of the biggest stars of the time. Yeah. Which is just something that's not going to happen. No. And, and, and and this is before the the Hollywood started paying the actors $20 million yeah. where you just couldn't do something like this. The nice thing is that Murder by Death still exists and that you can watch it. I actually got it from the library. Nice. Uh, and I also own a copy because I had to as soon as I saw it. I bought a copy. Yeah. Uh, it's... You can get this movie, watch this movie. I have... Proof positive from a 14-year-old and from Phoebe. They both went into it very skeptical, and they both really liked it. It's great for your collection. It's a great movie. It's a great movie to watch with your family. Not like your kids, because they'll yeah. probably get bored. But like, you know, your, hey, you never your, know. your parents. It's If you got Gen X parents or, you know, uncles or whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. Be like, hey, 
You ever see Murder by Death? Watch their faces light up and, yeah. and suggest, hey, I'd like to see it. Watch it with them. Yeah. And I bet you they'll be like, I just ordered the DVD. Let's yeah. do it tomorrow. <laughs> it's just such a wonderful movie. Uh, this whole month is just about finding weird little movies yeah. that yeah. you you probably missed. And unlike anything else you've really seen before. And this, too, even though it is a takeoff on a very uh, well-worn yeah. genre, it is completely unique in its execution. It is. And it is. it's one of the funniest ensemble mystery films to this day that you'll ever 100%. see. You know, if you're concerned about Peter Sellers playing a, a Chinese character, just know that that is part of of the satire read the history is, yeah. yeah exactly know, know your history before you get outraged that's yes. a it's yes. a that's a good rule of thumb there was a reason for it exactly There's a reason behind everything in this movie which is why it's so brilliant it's the weekend get yeah. the movie watch yeah. the movie and your life will be better and you'll thank us yeah we'll be back next week uh with some Ooh, mad, mad monster, monster party. party oh another super one of the excited. weirdest damn movies Yet ever. another thing this month i've not seen so i'm super excited about it i also want to point out not only because i mentioned that my sis mm-hmm. and i uh watched all these movies but this is her birthday month oh that's right and her birthday's on august 20th so we'll yeah. be doing mad monster the day on on uh the day before tracy's birthday mm-hmm. eve yeah uh, so this month is kind of uh, our birthday present to my sis, yeah. Tracy. Happy birthday, Tracy. We'll, we'll do it again next week. Woody Allen, Larry Gilbart, creator of the TV show MASH. And, whoa, sorry. That's, a, that's all him. Sorry, that's okay. all Larry Gilbert. Let me start that again. Mm-hmm. <sighs> we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming, All in the Family, already in progress.